Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Now, I look around and I see a lot of familiar faces, and so perhaps um, there is no need for an introduction, uh, but I thought I would just give a short introduction, a personal introduction, um, by simply saying that uh, as someone who goes to Jakarta often, um, I have certain rituals. And one of the first rituals I do when I arrive is to go out and buy a copy of Tempo. I was there uh, at the end of July and I bought this issue of Tempo. And the second part of the ritual is always to open at the back end and to read the Chatatan Pingir. This is Gunawan's famous um, essay that opens your mind, clears your head, and makes you think. And, and anyone who has read Chatatan uh, Pingir, as I have again and again on all my visits to, to uh, Jakarta, will realize that an essay covers a huge intellectual, literary, historical spectrum. And the essay in uh, this issue, which I picked up in Jakarta, was titled Sumbang. Now, anyone who knows Indonesian knows that, unless you have a context, Sumbang is very difficult to translate because it can mean illicit, it can mean out of tune, disordered, it can actually, in some contexts, be incestuous. Um, and this is a kind of a teasing way to pull you into this essay. And this essay then just leads you through a whole range of different ideas. He begins with a dialogue, I mean, he begins with Rumi, the Sufi poet, someone he often uh, refers to in his essays. He refers to, uh, and a dialogue, Rumi's dialogue with uh, Iblis, with the devil. And the devil is the one who says that a person of ill will, no matter how many times he's told the truth, uh, even a hundred signs, he will still not change. And he uses that to look at, at um, people who are warned again and again about smoking uh, and go on smoking. And you're still wondering, where is the word sumpang going to come up? And suddenly introduces this idea of cognitive dissonance. And then you suddenly realize, oh, this is the concept he's getting across when he talks about cognitive dissonance. This is Fessinger's um, concept about people who struggle to operate when their beliefs are in contradiction to reality. Then he goes on talking about famous people with idee fixe. For example, Boris Johnson, who refers to the Papuans as cannibals and the Africans as piccaninnies. Um, he then talks very interestingly, he gets, comes back to Rumi, he talks about the difference between um, uh, the triumph of the imagination over, over reason. 
He brings in a reference to the Chillicott Report and Blair and Bush not heeding the warning of the inspections. And then he goes on, returns for the third time to Rumi, and Rumi's response to the devil's uh, admonitions, or devil's, in his devil's comments, he says, diam, da, uh, diam and dame. But Gunawan says, that's a starting point, and we have to go on from there. So it's, it's one of these brilliant essays, I think, and the, one of the things you immediately ask is, how in the world do you translate something that's subtle and as incredible as that? The language, subtle, fluid, insinuating. Well, we have here not only the person, uh, uh, I mean, the person who writes these essays, but the person who translates these essays. And Jennifer Lindsay, Jenny Lindsay, is someone who is remarkable in any way, in many ways, because I would say, from what I can judge, she has the finest control of Javanese, knowledge of Javanese, of any foreigner I've ever met. I've heard her talk with the Abdidalam. She's a scholar of Javanese. She lives in Jogja. She has been translating. She's been translating Gunawan since uh, the first book, Sidelines, the thought pieces that were published in 1994. And she's gone on doing that. Since 2000, Tempo, Tempo has a English edition. And uh, these essays come out one week, and then the next week, uh, Jenny has her translation in the English edition. So we're going to start a conversation. Um, we will, I think, talk about the book. In other words, it's, it's a hundred selection from a thousand essays over 40 years writing. Um, but I think there is so much to talk about that we may just go over 35 minutes before we open to questions. So let's see how it goes. Now, what I would like to do is emphasize and be as spontaneous as possible, but I'd like to probe at the beginning your, the essay which is reprinted here, it's been reprinted earlier in, your, in, your, in another one of your volumes, and that's Sacred Poetry. And that was an essay written before the Tempo articles began. It was written back in 1968 for Harian Kami, and it's, um, in many ways, it is prophetic in the sense that it is one of those key essays that you see the very young Muhammad, uh, the very young Gunawan, who is finding his voice, but in fact that voice is consistent through all the 40 years and more. So, can I ask you, uh, how did you start? Uh, to start writing? Yeah, we'll start writing these essays. Oh. Well, this kind of form is very short, so you have to waste your time uh, writing books and which academics do. Uh, so that's very convenient. Uh, and there's a suspense of writing short. It's not easy, but it's very suspense because then you start to realize that things are not finished yet you have not completed the whole sentence. And somebody has to do it, and the readers. And that's the suspense, and I enjoy that. Did I? Oh, well, no, okay. it's, 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 and there's any answer you do. Can we? Well, first of all, thank you for having me here, for in this building. And I'm, as a retired 
editor, I'm very happy to be among many retired folks. <laughs> <laughs> by force or by default, or voluntarily. The number is increasing, right? <laughs> so yeah, uh, when my column started from boredom, actually, when Tempo started to publish, and the first five years, I had to write a letter to, of the editor explaining who writes what, what kind of topics should, should be presented in the issue. And it's getting boring because so many, sort of very few people write for the magazine then. So I started to change and people like, I started to really change it out of whim. And people like it, so I continue with that. And I think people still like it. That's why they buy the book. <laughs> When you, you started, when did the, the I, I have to say, I think Gunawan is very fortunate to having such an extraordinary translator. And um, it's marvelous to, to, to read these translations. When did this, this, this cooperation begin, this collaboration? Um, it started in 19, when I was working at the embassy, 1992. I think it was, um, and it was Gunuan's idea. Mm -hmm. I was very um, flattered, but, but you've probably forgotten us, but you asked me, <laughs> you said, would I like to translate your essays? I said, oh, well, that's a good idea. I don't know if I can do it, but, um, and that was to put a book together. That was not mm -hmm. for the weekly, because there was no English tempo at that time, so we decided to do the first book. Um, and to put them out. And by the time we put them out, of course, Tempo was banned. Um, so it was a good timing. But um, I have always regarded tra translation, you know, especially doing it weekly, as my weekly language lesson. And um, you know, I continue every single week to learn something new about the Indonesian language from, from translating these columns from, from Muslims, you know, mastery of the of the language. So, I consider it a great privilege to actually be able to translate them. It, it really tests me in every single way, and it teaches me an awful lot about the English language too. Remember, so that's how I feel about it. Do you want to take that Papua one? Is that? Oh well, we we've just come from um, the Melbourne Writers Festival. And we were talking quite a lot about language at that festival. And, and um, so what we did at one stage is we, we were talking about the nation and themes that <coughs> reoccur, mm -hmm. you said, um, Jim. And we were talking about the nation and uh, the idea of the nation and people's links to parts of the nation. And Amasbun read part of the one called Papua. And then I read it in English, and people seem to like that. So if you think that's a good idea, we could do a little of that. So you can hear it. Would you? What? No, no, we're, we're plotting. Don't worry. Don't worry. Plotting the next thing? Um, so do you want to do that again, Russ? Yes. Yeah, yeah? OK, so what we did is that he read a paragraph in Indonesian. So half the audience here can speak Indonesian, but for those of you who don't, you can hear it. Because to me, it's very important that you hear. I left my glasses in the oh, hotel. Oh, you left the glasses. But it's OK. I can read it. My oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what the whispering this, this, this is what happens when you get retired. <laughs> 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 
Ya. Hmm. Saya tak tahu bagaimana saya harus melihat bagian bumi ini. Luas, tak saya kenal, dengan rimba dan gunung tinggi yang keras, dan penduduk perkasa yang terdiam. Wilayah itu ada di peta Indonesia, negeri yang begitu penting bagi hidup saya, sejak saya kecil. Saya menyanyi dari Sabang sampai Merauke. Tapi saya menyanyikannya bukan dengan rasa bangga akan sebuah jangkauan geografis yang besar yang mungkin tak berfaedah. Saya menyanyikannya dengan rasa syukur yang berseru, kita juga punya saudara non di sana. Lagu itu sebuah salam. Tapi saya tak tahu adakah salam itu berbalas. Papua. I don't know how I should see this part of the globe, expansive, unfamiliar, with jungles and sheer tall mountains and its sturdy people, silent. This territory has been on, has been on the map of Indonesia, the country that is so important in my life since I was a child. I sang from Sabang to Merauke, but I sang it not with a sense of pride about this huge geographic spread, possibly useless, I sang it with a sense of gratitude that exclaimed, we also have brothers and sisters way over there. The song was a greeting, but I don't know whether that greeting was reciprocated. This part of the globe has been called in turn Papua, West Irian, Irian Jaya and Papua, a territory it seems that has never chosen its own name. The ones doing the choosing are the big shots who love rhetoric and the cartographers who don't want errors. Perhaps the naming is a part of listing, an administrative matter, or a project of victory and power. Naming is limiting, and beyond that, silence. History which gathers stories of various events also often proceeds from a name, a limiting. And so concerning that part of the globe way over there in the east, Perhaps I can speak of it only within limits already formed by history, although through a particular experience. One day, in 1927, my older brother was born there, in Tanahmera, when my parents were exiled to De Gaulle by the Dutch colonial government. So when I write with sadness now about Papua, it's because there's a personal historical tie between Papua and me. Thanks. Thanks. It's beautiful both ways. Right? <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, really. Um, yeah. Well, sometimes it's very difficult to know that you are going to be translated. <laughs> and you become aware of there are two kinds of audiences. And you don't know how you, who you speak to first. But luckily, Jenny is very good. So I can be at peace with that. But, you know, bridging audience is difficult, even in Indonesian, because of the gap of generation. For example, when I write about something which Indonesians know very well, you don't have to explain to foreigners. When you become self-conscious that you are going to be translated, that's going to be a problem. But then also, a problem when you talk to even in Indonesian language to young generation. 
I'm not very sure whether if I mention Trotsky, for example, the young generation will understand who is he, what is he. So it will require more effort. And to explain things in a short essay will be a dead form. So I don't want to do it. And that's quite the problem. Uh, but thank you that Jenny can make it uh, acceptable by English speaking and reading public. This is also a selection, so it's deliberately selecting the ones that are more accessible mm. to foreign readers. But I mean, you've been doing this every week, every single week, um, apart from when, you know, even when Tempo was banned, uh, you were still writing, but putting it in different places. Every single week, how do you do it? <laughs> well, somebody asked me, why did you do it? <laughs> <laughs> and my answer was simple. Because of the deadlines. <laughs> <laughs> it became a habit. When Tempo was banned, I did it just to challenge the government that we were not defeated. So the article was published in underground uh, magazines called Independent. And I'm very proud to say that I'm the only one who signed it because I have to sign. <laughs> Otherwise, people will, will, will not distribute it. It's my writing. So when they were put to journalists on trial, and I was a witness, said, you are the only one who signed your name. Well, yes, I'm very proud of that. <laughs> but of course, it was very easy. I'm not, I was not the one who was going to be sentenced. But the amazing thing is, I mean, the, the constraint of the form. The column is about 800 words, sometimes a little over, but usually about 800, that's it. The sh so it's a short essay. And I mean, Gunwan also writes other essays, longer essays. But the short essay, this form, and as, as, as you, Jim, so rightly said, you know, within that, within that constraint of that short essay, he, he can sort of go from the universe, you know, down to a, a grain of sand or, or the opposite direction. In such a in such a, um, a wonderfully flexible way, um, I mean, I know that at times for you you must feel like you're in a straitjacket with the 800 words and want to just sort of get out. But I feel that the constraint of the short essay has actually really polished that kind of writing like a diamond because you get ha having to do it for so long and regularly. How do you feel it's not about easy. How do you it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy because somebody said that writing long articles is easier mm. when you cut. You may have to sacrifice some information. When I do write, uh, and sometimes getting very confusing, uh, I have so many materials. I do a lot of research. Then what are you going to do with the rest of the material you have? You have to cut it. And then mm. what's, and I don't want to repeat it next issue. So yeah, it's a very tough, but you know, when you, then tempo editors, now I'm no longer editor, but I have to follow the rules, decide that you don't go further than 400, 4,800 characters, or we'll cut you. So I have to adjust, and, and you, then they have a very good technique. 
When it's not too long, they put a drawing in. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. There's, but there's an element in every essay that's really poetry. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of, it's so compacted that the poetry also comes through. Yeah, we were talking about that too, but yeah, I write poetry. And I write poetry, and that's why I become a journalist, because, because poetry doesn't pay, like crime doesn't pay, poetry also doesn't pay, so I become a journalist <laughs> to earn my living. And, uh, it, and essay is a very good form. Mix, mixing poetry, sort of. There's always poetic element in the language because essay is a, uh, essay is, is a way to to preserve the plasticity of ideas. Mm -hmm. To not repeat yourself and you have to dodge the conceptual constraints of discourse. And that's why poetry is important. I, mentioned about my early writing about sacred poetry. My idea of sacred book, Quran, the Bible, and everything else, is this is to be read as poetry. Unfortunately, people today and in the past read it as a legal document. When it's legal documents, it binds you. It doesn't free you from, from the text. And that's very limiting, and the other on, and the, the other promise, it makes God uh, like a lawyer, mm. which is better than most lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's my idea about the sacred poetry. Please read the Quran and the Bible, of course. They are poetic works. And there's a book by a German Muslim scholar Nefit Kermani, whom I know, whom I met several years ago, the, the quote, God is shown, God is beautiful. And he tells us about the beauty of the Quran and why it's, it's important to see the beauty. As a philosopher, I think it's an Iranian a philosopher, of course, a Shia, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry, don't be sorry. Are you still? No, no. Actually, and in Russia, we have to say sorry about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that people always think God is truth, not beauty. And the beauty side enriches the idea of God as being more open. I have to stop there. Okay. <laughs> One thing, uh, and this is, this is asking a personal question, and I've wondered again and again when I've read your essays, I imagine a library at home because you make so many references mm -hmm. to so many books, so many things that I should have read and I haven't read. Um, how do you, I mean, how big is your library? It must be immense. No, it's immense. It's a Google. <laughs> <laughs> it's Google. In the past, it was very difficult. Well, the beginning of Chattanooga was actually to introduce books and ideas. So people said, you always show yourself being smart, reading so many books. But that's the idea. When new order came into existence, economic development was very much uh, in, the, in the life of everybody. 
and you started to have bookstores, then you went to the bookstores. What you had were books on management and palmistry of all <laughs> I think because people, capital gain and competition, and people get very insecure. And where are ideas? There are ideas outside the world, outside Indonesia. They are important, and they are books. That's why I try to start writing about books. And I like books. Uh, even online, even I have, sometimes I hide pirate it. Well, pirate I like books. Mm. Who, do, who do you feel now that you're writing for? Pardon? Because I feel there's sort of been a shift. Yes, you, you, you used to the column in Tempo and the days before internet and the days before all of that. Yes, it was like you were also translating, bringing the outside world in, introducing books and reading to Indonesian readers. Today, it's a different world and a lot of the readers can you know, access things online and they've mm. read them. So do you feel that the, the, the way that you write has changed because of that, because your role has changed? Uh, yes and no. When I wrote my column book, you know, Temple's library has budgets bigger than the library of Indonesian Air Force. It's true. No, it's Indonesia. Uh, the library of the Indonesian Air Force. I'm surprised they even have a library. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> Maybe they don't. Well, that <laughs> may not be a good comparator. Any, may not be good. That's no, no, not a good one. Because my friend who was an um, uh, Air Force officer who was in charge of library came to Tembo and was shocked. <laughs> that, oh, you have library. Okay. Uh, We're not shocked. Maybe it's easier now because you can be sure that if I mentioned, for example, Trotsky, it's kind of teaser. The readers can find themselves who Trotsky is. And I don't have to explain. Mm. When I mentioned some topics, there's Google. And the other thing, they can discover whether I plagiarize or not. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to be very careful. You mentioned several times, and this is a, one of the recurrent themes of what happened to your father's library mm -hmm. when the, the Dutch military came and took some of the books and threw them down a well. Mm -hmm. But that library, your father's library, was the first library, your reference library, which you built up. And that, it seems to me, is one of those moments in your life that you have you know, is a recurrent image. Yeah. Uh, somehow my father had a library, very small, not too big. But the books who I found them are very exciting. I didn't read, there are some of them in English. And there was, a, I remember English history book with beautiful paintings. And I never understood what it is. And there's a Webster Dictionary of 1931. There was a picture of palanquin, eh? palanquin. Mm -hmm. and my brother told me they are carrying orang mati. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yes. of course, he was lying. Yeah. But yeah, that gave me some idea about books and the importance of books. Uh, in fact, not only books were thrown, but my sister, not very long time ago, 
told me that when my, they arrested my father and brought him back to the house to search the house because we couldn't discover phone out books or the documents. And my father uh, opened the ceiling and there are books with car marks on the cover and he was beaten. And my sister was watching Ooh. and it was very, yeah. Mm. yeah. You mentioned um, that's the, the importance of your older brother, Hakono, um, in in giving providing books for you and introducing you to reading. My sister too. And your sister, and and introducing you to books from the outside world, and in English, yeah, mm -hmm. and in French and German. Um, no, not French. Not English. Not English. Yeah. yeah. So so, and your brother used to provide. Provide you with no, that's the fortunate being the youngest. Yes. You were provided. Mm. <laughs> but that's uh, amazing because we're talking about the 19... When was he doing that? How old uh, was he? Early 50s. Early 50s. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, my... Oh. <laughs> I don't want to be also biographical there, but mm. my father taught my brother English. Mm. I listened. I listened to him repeating the same. I'm talking. I'm talking, and in Japanese, I am not all dajin. What's And then, so he could have correspondence with friends outside, mm. and brought some magazines also. But that's that is just a little gem to show you how even in the 1950s the outside world was oh. coming into this little, you know, place of technology. Oh, yeah. Mm. Uh, so you undermine <coughs> the impact of globalization of ideas, mm. even in the 50s. Actually, mm. that's uh, your book about... It wasn't alluding to it. Jenny wrote a book called Alivaris Budaya Dunia. It's mm. a word from the manifesto of uh, 45 generations that we are... Aliwaris, inheritors, inheritors of the world yeah. culture. And the opening to the world culture was very, very prominent. And I wonder why. And then when I picked into the documents, and you know, they were from Japanese period where people were confined with violence, language of animosity like mm. against the West. And the uh, Glorification of Asia and all everything East, the myth of the East, which was very Orientalist, but we adopted it. Uh, and then, freed from that, I think this generation started to open up. And actually, Indonesian nationalism has always been an open nationalism. Uh, that's the difference between what, for example, nationalism in Serbia with ethnic components very strong. We didn't have. One of the reasons was, of course, because most of the elite political world educated by the West. And the second one is Marxism. Marxism reads colonialism not as a race thing, but the class thing. And there's international uh, spirit in that. Mm. And that's why we open, you know, Hatta, French, distributed communist manifesto to people. He would be. He would have arrested. Been arrested. We have no. Mm. Yeah. 
but there was also in, in Sukarno this role of teacher. I remember I arrived in 65 and heard him speak about exploitasi belom parlom, and then he explained this, or vivere pericoloso, and then he would explain this. He was, he was bringing in foreign concepts and, yeah. and, and explaining them. Yeah, that's the one thing that opened up Indonesian nationalism. You read Sukarno's text, a lot of quotes, not only Karl Marx, but even uh, what? Juarez, the Mexican yeah, Revolution, and uh, Ernesto Renan from the French. It's very cosmopolitan in a way, and this idea of nationalism, as he says, our nationalism grows in the beautiful garden of internationalism. Mm. That is, was the spirit in the 50s, and mm. it was stifled expressly with the idea of guided democracy, with the whole efforts of nationalism. Mm. Now you have globalization, and I don't know whether they are good or not, but you have Google. Yeah. Before, I, I, before we start questions, I do want to go from the past, and looking at the past, looking at the essays in this book, to what you're doing now. And most importantly, I mean, the last time we met, uh, we met at Hutankayu, mm -hmm. and that was, that was the first of an effort. Uh, the second effort was in Salihara. And this Salihara, if you don't know it, is, is an incredible uh, amalgam of, of it's, he's the entrepreneur there for all sorts of performances, for poetry, for, for traditional materials, and for avant-garde. It's, it's remarkable. Uh, could you say something about that? I mean, this is, this is the future. <laughs> Not, I don't know, but yes, it was important and for me, personally, and also, I think, for the city. Hutan uh, Kayu, I think some friends here, maybe I, I, I will tell you, began not as a cultural center. It was a hiding place. A hiding place, yeah, okay. So when Suharto was in power, we were banned and we were working underground. And to have a cover, you know, during Suharto time, when you have a meeting, to have a meeting, you have more than five people, you have, you have to require a police permit. So we pretended to have a philosophical mm. discussion, theater performance. Theater. Or sooner we got, it became our habit. And then when Suharto fell, we developed into a real, real cultural center. That we before Salihara. And then we moved to Salihara because we got a good piece of land and cheap, and we built it. And, and the theory that the problem with Jakarta now is you have so many malls. <laughs> and one mall to another is just the same. And I don't know why people go there. I do, I do go there, of course, yeah. because it's air conditioned. <laughs> <laughs> and the food sometimes is good. Yeah. Uh, but Young people go there, spend time, and people go there, and what is the alternative? And things become, everything is commodified. Uh, music is commodified and everything. So people start to see 
agricultural product, not have no other values but exchange values. And that's why we started with this, to create some alternative space. Uh, it's difficult because the funding is not very easy. And thank God that some times we got some funding from Australian government and your money uh, to bring uh, Australian dancers. And we had very good groups of Australian performers. Australia, except besides German, Germany, are major contributors to our international festival, performing arts. We are going to do it uh, next October. Do come to Salihara. It's a nice place. All right. To follow the time, can I now, um, there's microphones here. There's also, hands are already going up. Let's, let's ask the questions. Yes, Lakan. The question is, did, does he always want to know, always know he wanted to be a writer from childhood? And what books did he read in childhood that helped, that, that inspired him? Yes, I always wanted to be a writer, a poet actually, uh, for several reasons. One says, I live not very far from Cicerone College, and when they went to the sea, they sang songs. At dusk, it's very mysterious and very erotic songs, and I like erotic songs at the time also. And uh, they're beautiful. And then the second thing is uh, radio. Actually, I didn't read, but I listened. Indonesian national radio, we were talking about, our generation was shaped by the national radio. Every week they had a poetry reading in the radio in Jakarta. We listened. Beautiful. I wanted to do that. And the first book, actually, I got as a Sidul Anakmud Betawi. When I was class teacher, my sister sent it. Then I learned Betawi's speaking uh, language there, Batavi language from the book. And that's, then we, we have books from, uh, that time, Ballet Pustaka was very good. Uh, it published a catalog and reached my the home, and we could order. And other books were, of course, German authors, Karl uh, May, you know about it? The generation now, Karl May, he writes about adventures, mostly fictions, and uh, about the Balkans and Indians, and Native Americans. Uh, most of them are bullshit, <laughs> because he's never been there. But it's very exciting. So we say that. Father, we read Karl Marx, we read Karl May. <laughs> <laughs> and that's very, very exciting. And 
Later on, we discovered it. It's never been to any place except to Sumatra. When he became rich, he went to Sumatra and wrote a postcard about Sumatra. And he, he think he had the sympathy for the nationalist movement. In Indonesia, we had a, a man who was so passionate, passionate about this book, he established a club. And I, of course, I, invited, I was invited to find more about this author. And we discovered that he was in Sumatra, West Sumatra in Philippine Fisher. That's the books I read. Yeah. Next question, Vicky. Oh, Tony, sorry. Tony Reed. Um, I thought when, when you're distinguishing Indonesian nationalism from Indian nationalism, the third category surely is, is the Indonesian school and Indonesian refinement of regeneration of this, that, the comfortable change to London. So, what when you look back, I mean, has it become high time? Has it really gone with the boat? Or is this still, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the focus on Indonesian literature at the Frankfurt Book Fair, and it was sort of first to the world, he lives, nobody ever heard of Indonesian literature, and for the first time it's out there, and you were the guy who had to kind of apologize for it, while people have never heard of Indonesian literature around the world. And did you end up feeling proud that image of you done something here? Free Mo Grace in 45, produced a world publisher? Uh, if I understand you correctly, well, if I'm proud about it, because I read your book, <laughs> about the role of revolution forging the idea of nation, that was wonderful because I realized that was true. And then about our being known outside Indonesia, Indonesian literature, we are not known at all. And our effort in the Frankfurt Booker did manage to put our work on the map, but not in a big way because the bureaucracy, uh, the translation funding was very limited. And you know, translating books and Jenny was with some afraid of, but novel, it takes one year, I think, to translate novel. He started to prepare for Frankfurt Bureau six months before that. Mm. It was a crazy idea. But he managed to yeah, announce to the world that there were books. And luckily, it was 50th year of 65. And many books published at that time were about 65. So they were more focused on that. Did I answer you? Well, I was thinking that you, I, I remember reading your comments. Mm. Oh yeah, we don't. Yeah, it's true. We don't read books, and reading habit in Indonesia is one of the lowest in the world. And that's why the minister of education, former, admitted it from the first day. We were the lowest on under. And he started to, to acquire, require students to read 
15 minutes each day. But he was demoted now. I don't know about the new minister. Uh, maybe he has something, I, new idea. Uh, but yes, and I was worried actually when there was a lot of phones, oral television, people would start stop reading. But then came the internet, the handphone. People read, I mean, text, love letters and cursing, but they do read. And surprisingly, with the, the quality of education we have, which is appalling in terms of, of especially about literature, uh, surprisingly, there were good novels being produced and in, in a larger number than before. I don't know how and why whether it's going to be uh, to be more distributed, I don't know. And the good news lately was that poetry book became bestseller. Yeah, 30,000? 30, and then I started, why? Then I discovered that because one poem was mentioned by a very popular film, Ada Apa Dengan Cinta. And then when Tempo celebrated uh, an, a high honor as a national, in a national day. They invited Dian Sastro to read Hyrule Anwar's poem with the ministers and chief of police. And people, 900 people came, not for me, for Dian Sastro. <laughs> <laughs> and I came for her too. <laughs> That's good promotion for this. Looking for the next question. Oh, right here. Angie, you have a chance tomorrow. <laughs> Give her a chance now. Um, um, I was just wondering, since earlier you said that once you started writing and publishing, uh, everyone stopped reading. So what is your understanding of how early years affect the literature? Uh, I don't know how they appreciate it. They say they like it, but whether they really read it, I don't know. <laughs> because developing it as books, they are not in a, not a great sale. Yeah. It's less popular than palm mystery sale. Uh, so I don't know. But people say they like it, and maybe they do. And I think I'm famous more or less because every time I walk, the people want me to take photographs. <laughs> so I like a Monas. You know Monas? <laughs> when people go to Jakarta, yes, to take a picture of you in front of Monas. So when everybody, somebody asks me to take a picture, can I take a picture with you? Then I, I'm doing my job as a Monas. <laughs> That's it. So I don't know whether they like uh, people like I hope they do. And I appreciate it. I think who are here, they like it. I'm sure you will do. Most of them are so beautiful. Next question, looking. Oh, let's go up, okay. Um. Or are you really disappointed, or are you happy 
Well, my theory is that history began with hope. And in the middle way, you start having disappointment. Every year, every time, 40, 45, the old, the two cardinals time, two other time, now. There was there were a lot of series of disappointment, yes. But maybe politics, living in politics is management of hope and disappointment. So I'm, it's not something new. I can bear with that. And I always, when we started reformers, we knew there was a going to be some disappointment with democracy. In fact, I give a lecture in Paramania called Democracy and Disappointment. But then you have to go on. It's your country. You have to go on. Disappointment or otherwise, you have to do something. You know, can I quote something from the famous Chinese author, Ritsun, my favorite quote. There's an essay in there, yeah. Yeah. Ritsun said, in the beginning, uh, hope is like a path in the forest. In the beginning, at the beginning, there was no path. But when many people walk on that, hope was created. That's what we have to do, what we are doing now, to create hope. Because you can expect hope to come from heaven. You have to walk in thousands, many years. You have to go on. It's your country. Well, it's everywhere. Yeah? Islam has become very visible, hijab. And people go back to religion in a strong way. Uh, many born-again Muslims, but many born-again Islam. And born-again Muslims are sometimes are more annoying. Uh, uh, so yeah, religious groups are getting popular. And uh, well, in the world, Islam has become marketable. Everything about Islam is good, grabbed. Uh, but whether it's a sign of uh, a good sign of thinking, I doubt. You know, the problem with today is that. A new unthinking process going on. You know, there's a return of fixed ideas, cliches, labels, and dogmatism. Yeah. And I don't blame religion for that. Always people say, not religion is to blame, but the people. Of course, if, if well, 
our religion cannot change the people. That's another question. I don't. I cannot answer that. But yeah, right. It's so anyway. Colin tells us we have one last question, but instead what we're going to do is ask Gunawan to read a passage from Tana Ayer, native, and we'll re he'll read that, and then Jenny will read the, the translation. Is that good? Yeah, but if you have any more questions, just outside and take pictures. <laughs> <laughs> of, of Monas. <laughs> yeah. Bisakah kau berhenti berpikir tentang Indonesia? Kemarin pertanyaan itu muncul di kepala saya. Saya ingin bilang, ya bisa, kenapa tidak? Sebab saya kadang ingin menghilang ke dalam sebuah lupa, bersembunyi di sudut yang terjauh. Saya ingin memasang tirai, tidur mungkin bermimpi, dan tak berpikir lagi. Tapi Indonesia selalu datang. Indonesia selalu mengetuk. Justru ketika kita tidak mau dirisaukannya. Ketidakpastian membuat kita jaga. Saat harapan menjadi sukar, putus asa sangat menakutkan. Saya tak bisa menghindar. Sebuah Negeri, sebuah sejarah, sebuah nama. Apa arti semua itu bagi Anda dan saya? Apa arti sebuah tanah air? That's Nation, question. Native land. Can you stop thinking about Indonesia for a while? Yesterday, this question came to my head. I wanted to say, yes, sure, why not? For I sometimes want to lose myself in forgetting hide in a corner far away. I want to pull the curtains, sleep, dream perhaps, and not think again. But Indonesia always comes. Indonesia always knocks, and precisely when we don't want to care. Uncertainty makes us wary. The moment that hope becomes hard, despair is terrifying. I cannot run from this. A country, a history, a name, what does all this mean to you and me? What is the meaning of a native land? Well, with that, we end. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.